It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, hey Scott. Ty. How are you, Ty? I'm okay, thank you. Good. Good to see you. Or hear you, anyway, metaphorically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, everybody, thanks for stopping by the tent. And as you probably are aware by now, our friend today. And uh, we're going to have just another one of those kind of, as, as we just said, an organic conversation. We'll kind of see where it takes us and uh, talk about some new things and uh, maybe talk about some old things, too. And we actually pull a few of your questions. I have some questions for you, Ty. Some people okay. ask things. So we're going to answer some, uh, some audience questions, too. All right. Um, first of all, talk to me about some of the, the, the tanks you're playing with nowadays. You, you, were, you were talking before about maybe like shallow aquariums. And you're kind of... Yeah getting obsessed with them like i am T- talk to me about this well um i can't as i said to you i can't reveal too much but i'm in, engaged in a project which will be announced in the next couple of weeks probably which will involve uh showcasing a number of different dis- displays like based on biotope kind of stuff and uh, a number of them are going to be done in in shallow tanks um and i think to showcase you know some of the fish particularly that we we put at the what I think of the extreme ends of the aquarium, so at the surface or at the bottom, right? And, and they're not the focus because we always look at what's going on in the middle. But in a right. shallow tank, you know, so for instance, a corridor is catfish. We put them in our tall tanks, and they kind of bumble around the bottom. We don't really, you know, they're there, they're cute, they they have nice behavior and so on, and but they're not the focus normally of the tank. Uh, in a shallow tank, you know, they can be completely the focus because you can develop like a sort of shallow stream habitat same with hatchet fish if you've got a glass cover on a shallow tank you can uh celebrate hatchet fish in a shallow habitat which exactly. normally in a tall tank are kind of forgotten up at the top you know there's something you throw in as an afterthought it, um it's so, yeah. funny you sh- i'm going to interrupt you because it's you got me excited it's it's funny <laughs> you should mention hatchet fish because I was thinking the same thing, and I know I think you were telling me the other day you got one of an ADA. Was it a sixty, the sixty P or sixty F? Yeah. Or the one. Okay, there's the shallow version. I have that. Yeah. That tank too, and I long thought that would be really cool for hatchet fish, yeah. especially like marble hat, the little guys, right? Yeah. Because you, like you said, you're not sort of wasting that space. You're keeping them confined to where you can see them, and if you can cover it effectively, that yeah. could be a really cool display. I, I collected um, hatchets, uh, marbled hatchets in Colombia in a small stream mm-hmm. in, in, near Leticia in the Colombian Amazon. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And they were in a really shallow stream that was just leaf litter. I mean, there's an incredible amount of uh, fish diversity in there. But I remember, you know, just pulling up these nets full of leaf litter, sifting through it. And there were these little lovely hatchets. And um, so you could do a in, in a in a shallow ADA style, you could fill the bottom with leaf litter and then, um, yeah, gl- cover glass on there and a big group of the marbled hatchets because they, they like to be in, in large groups. That's how they're most confident. Right. Um, and then you could, uh, something fun you might do is feed them like live fruit fries, which you can cultivate yourself. Mm-hmm. You can buy from a reptile shop so that, you know, you'll see really natural feeding behavior. Um, exactly. And they will just charm you. And if you have a big group of them, like, you know, dozens and dozens which is how you will find them in the wild. 
um, mm-hmm. they'll be confident and happy and out and about and you can enjoy them. How, how have you, you said they're found in dozens. So they're huge. They're found in big shoals basically yeah. on the surface. When I collected them, we found a fair number of them, but I think because we were using uh, quite shallow sort of drag nets that as mm-hmm. the nets come, they scatter and they, and they, they, then you sort of, you round up whoever doesn't manage to escape. But uh, I've seen images of them kind of in at the surface in the wild in fairly large groups. Um, it's harder to be, you know, picked off if you're in right. a shoal. Um, the giant silver hatchets, which I've collected in, in Brazil, tend to be in loose formations of two or three, but quite a few across an area of water in, uh, in open water. Um, and the uh, black wing hatchets, which I'm looking at right now in my tank, I, I don't know about. Um, but I assume that it, because they're one of the smaller hatchets, that again, it's a sort right. of... Uh, they prefer to be in, in greater numbers. So I have my my feelings about this, and you probably have your own thoughts. But you know, especially the marbles have the reputation and the hobby to be difficult fishes. Mm-hmm. And my feeling is is I have two feelings. They're you know kind of tricky for for a lot of people. Is number one, I think they're they're poorly handled when they're collected, and they're yep. not fed. And number two, I think they're they're challenging for a lot of people to get to transition to foods that are easier for us as hobbyists. Like you said, you mentioned fruit flies. Mm-hmm. We need to work on feeding them the foods that they're used to, fruit flies, ants, you know, insects that fall into the water, that kind of stuff, as opposed to trying to get them to eat flakes or yep. brine shrimp or whatever right off the bat. I mean, do you kind of agree with that or do you think there's some other I, factors? I, I totally agree with that. I do think there's another factor which is appropriate for you, for you which is uh, yeah. the, the le- level of tannins in the water yeah. and, and pH. So when when are these fish collected? They're collected during the dry season when they can be collected in large numbers in shallow pools. During uh. the dry season, these shallow bodies of water, it's really warm. Um, there's lots of organic material sort of has been building up in, in over time in there. Sure. Um, so they come from very soft, warm water Um they're probably crowded together in fairly large numbers in the remaining bodies of water. And then we put them in our tanks, often in our community tanks, in a completely alien environment. They exactly. don't travel well. Um, they often get white spot as soon as you put them in, even the store. They arrive in the store, they get white spot. Um, when I worked in the trade, it was kind of, I got quite sick of it because yeah. people would order in a bag of, you know, 150 of them. And with the expectation that two thirds would die before oh. they went on sale. And that was seen as just the acceptable loss. Horrible. Because yeah. they were put on a, often put onto systems that weren't soft water systems. And they were, you know, suddenly a, a tank with a blue background, hundreds of people walking past every day. Of course they, they were stressed out. And one of the things I learned in, in Brazil collecting with my, my friends there was many of the smaller carousins you mentioned earlier, they don't, they, that they're not handled correctly they they will die as soon as you handle them like some of the smaller tetras there was just no point trying to collect them to bring for tanks in the lab um because they perished as soon as you held wow. them in your hand as soon as you had them in a net some either there was a loss of scales either it was shock temperature change so these are fish that don't travel well then they arrive in shops or uh homes where the conditions are very different to what they've been used to right. and they're not being fed <laughs> the, the right things right. from the offset so and they tend to be at least in the uk they're not a cheap fish so no, they're people not buy like 
four or five, maybe three. And then, of course, these animals are stressed. If you bought 30 and you put them all in the tank, they'd probably be much better off. Right. Of course, you might lose 18 of them in, in sure. quarantine, but, <laughs> but <laughs> unfortunately. But, you know, I think also, too, this reminds me of like with a lot of the marine fishes when I was working on that end of the trade. A lot of these fishes need to feed continuously, too. Now, I, you know more about the, the, the ecology of their environment and, and how they feed. But do sure. they not have a short like digestive system where they need to be continuously eating insects and things that fall in the water? Or do they feed continuously throughout the day? Or well, like maybe a lot that's of, part of it? Like a lot of small fish, they have a high metabolism. They mm-hmm. need to sustain. Partly, you need to. You're always on the move um, to avoid being predated. Um you always need to move to find food and therefore you need to consume constantly. They will also not overlook a meal. I mean, this is why, you know, if um, fish that you've caught, you know, with a lure, you throw it back and five seconds later, it'll attack the lure again. The fish cannot <laughs> afford to pass up the meal, even though it's had a bad experience with that lure. The same with the hatchets. They won't, they will feed whenever they can. And in a, say in a jungle environment, like in, where it was in Colombia, there's a lot of winged insects going on. There's a lot of um, small uh, aquatic insects that are moving around on the surface. There's all sorts of things going on. There'll be debris. You, people who have hatchets in their tank will probably notice that they'll pick at anything that floats by once they're, once they're comfortable because they think, well, it might be a bit of detritus. It might be a dead bug. Who knows? But it's going in. Right. And um, they need that, that fuel. Um, but also there are two as you probably know from the tropics there's two distinct uh feeding times for fish that predate on winged insects which is you know early in the morning when it's mm-hmm. kind of cool um and just before dusk so i noticed the silver hatchets in brazil were very active at dusk and at night i was hunting them um because there were so many insects around Interesting. Um, so it, it might be for those people who've got hatchets it might be an interesting experiment to change the feeding routine perhaps feed a little bit later than you might do just before the lights are going out or feed two feeds one very early in the morning when you get up before work um before you go out for work and one perhaps just before going to bed and see you know when the lights go out and see if that encourages feeding because if if they're wild caught fish that's perhaps the time they're used to being on the lookout for things um but most of them will you know if there's food available They'll, they'll take it whenever they can. So, so you, you hit it on the head. That's another one of those things that I've always found really fascinating is that we as hobbyists, and you know, we've, we've talked about this before, and I talk about it a lot myself too, but the, the idea that we as hobbyists have adapted fishes to meet our lifestyle and our needs as opposed mm. to setting up not only the system, but our techniques and practices to accommodate their needs. And, and yeah. there's obviously the talented breeders and a lot of hobbyists do this, but it seems to be almost an afterthought in the general hobby. It's like we try to fit them into what works for us versus yeah. trying to set up the system and accommodate their needs and so forth. And that's why I find that fascinating. And, and you know, we talk about botanicals and leaves and so forth. Mm. Um, I find it fascinating that you could at least create a sort of uh, a, a a food web of sorts in the aquarium and help create food, internal food generation or food production so yep. that the fishes can feed more or less continuously throughout the day when you're not yeah. feeding them the supplemental food. I think that's really important. And I think we're seeing the importance of that and, and we're seeing the benefits of it. Um, but with a fish like a hatchet fish, I think that's fantastic that 
you mentioned the two feedings a day. I hadn't really considered that. I'd read about that, but I hadn't yeah. thought about that. And that's just sort of another little tweak that we can put into our techniques. Well, uh, a lot of these, you're right. And it is a little bit is knowing the behavior of the fish in the wild. And, and I mean, there's this great lie, right? The community tank. What <laughs> what What is a community tank? Like, okay, I've got some... <sighs> So my little ADA tank I'm looking at now, which is a sort of planted, slightly aquascape tank. I've got some tetras from the Pantanal. I've got some uh, hatchet fish from the Amazon. I've got some West African killifish. Um, and they all kind of hang out midwater near the surface. They all have similar water requirements. Um, none of them are too difficult. But, you know, it, 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 they come from vastly different habitats right. and places and, and extremes and, and have different foods you know, and so on. Um, and, and people think, you know, community like, Oh, all right, I'll put my, my hard water mollies with my soft water hatchets yep. and I'll throw in some black neons cause they're hardy. And there, there isn't in general in the sort of the general hobby as it stands, the, the thought, as you said earlier, well, actually I really need to cater to each of the species that's going into my tank. And that's why things like um, when people do a, a biotope tank, which has such a you know bad name, oh, it's kind of, you know, it'll be some twigs and some branches and some tea-colored <laughs> water, and it'll be full of brown fish. And, uh, it's like, well, hang on, that that can be orientated towards caring really well in a detailed manner for the species that you're trying to get the best out of. So that that's that system you create, that little world might be exactly what they need for you to get them breeding, for the colors to flare up, for the behavior to, to, to show itself. I think that's just as rewarding as a sort of generic uh, community tank where everything kind of gets on, looks pretty, but, you know. There's, uh, no one is thriving. Yeah, yeah. It, it, absolutely. And I think to me that has been one of the most rewarding parts about, you know, working with these botanical style aquariums is that you could actually create the environment first and then yeah. bring the fish in that you're looking to accommodate. And, and it's, it's a different orientation. And I think, it, I think it's yielded a lot of interesting results. I mean, to have, in my case, to have like green neons, you know, spawn because yeah, I set up the system good. just for them. I was like, that's more than coincidence. That's because the tank was optimized for their needs. Yeah. Now, granted, we can't always dedicate one tank to one species. And, you, and that was the next question I want to ask you. So, do you think it's as effective to do a grouping of fishes from a given habitat or given, I hate to use the word biotope all the time, but a given habitat or biotope or whatever that are found together naturally is, can that be as effective as an individual species tank in terms of perhaps creating spawning behaviors or. Um, it can um, be if you that? make sure that the, the, the tank has accommodation for each of the species. So you've got, um, for example, if you were doing a, a South American you know, Amazon stream tank, you'd have your hatchets at the surface, you'd have some midwater tetras, and you have some corridors at the bottom, and each of them has their sort of stratum to operate in. Right. Um, it's their, their bit, it's where they feel comfortable, it's what, the space they would occupy in the wild. So sure, you, you may well get um, uh, natural behavior in terms of feeding and breeding, and display. I do, and you, you touched about it, a minute ago something that you've inspired me like with your green neon tank and mm -hmm. and from my observations in the wild 
one of the things I'm going to be doing in this upcoming project, I hope to showcase this over the next uh, months and a, a year or so, basically single species tanks with like one yep. plant in it, but plant in a natural sense. So not like aquascaped, but a single species of plant, as I see in the wild, you know, sometimes you'll have meters and meters of one species. You don't have the, the garden that you might see in, a, in, a, in an aquascaped uh, right. aquarium. And a huge shoal of very small fish in large numbers just and just that species and let them think for themselves yeah exactly so much of it i think is about getting out of our own way and you know again taking our inspiration from the the natural environment the work that you're doing the photos that you've taken and other people you know ivan and other people have taken in in, Mm -hmm. in these habitats and seeing how the fishes really live it's every bit as interesting and every bit as sexy and fun as a super high-tech concept aquascaped aquarium, yeah. I think we, we just tend to put ourselves in that mindset of, oh, this is how they're kept. And that's yeah. sad because, as you mentioned, there's so many interesting behaviors and interesting things that you can learn from giving a single species or several species that are found together and yeah. a habitat that works. One of the things I was going to ask you, what about fishes that reside together or feed together? For example, I understand that like some of the dwarf quarries there, there's other fishes like uh, some of the darter caracins, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so forth that, that mimic or, or school with or feed with certain fishes. That yeah. would be a really interesting display too, right? Do you have any examples of that, that you had seen in the wild or that yeah. would be interesting for a tank? Um, for me, it's Corridorus hastatus. Mm-hmm. Um, which I've seen shoaling in midwater in their hundreds alongside a little uh, tetra from the Pantanal, which is called Hemigrammus tridens. And this is one of the smallest uh, tetras found in, 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 in Latin America and it's certainly one of the smallest in the Pantanal. And it has almost exactly the same markings, black caudal spot with some little white spots on the tail as the Corridorus hastatus as does the sedge tetra, Hyphesobrichum elakis, um, mm-hmm. as does uh, Sehapinus crigi and Sehapinus caliurus, which are all found in the same part of the Pantanal. So it's this mimicry where the, the Corridorus has realized, perhaps, that it, on, the, on the substrate, it's competing with other Corridorus for food, you know, benthamic invertebrates and so on. But if it mimics the midwater tetras, it can then as a very small fish, move into the main water column in large numbers, blend in with the tetras and therefore reduce risk of predation and take advantage of all the food which is drifting in, in the, in the midwater column. And I think that's just amazing. And when, when you're snorkeling through the sort of murky tannin water and you're seeing all these tetras with these particular distinct markings on the tail, and then you realize they're not tetras. There are also corridors mixed in and you're like, hang on. And, um, you know, people, hemogrammus tridens is pretty hard to get in the hobby, but I think in the States, um, you can definitely get uh, Serpinus crigi. Yeah, I've seen get, that. You can get Hyphysobrachonelakis, the sedge tetras. Yep. Um, and, you know, if you had, say, two or three of these species, all with the similar markings, uh, fairly spacious tank in large numbers, they'll be up and shoaling in the, mid, in the midwater. A way to encourage that might be to use um, food stuff like the JBL Novo tabs that you can stick on the glass. Mm-hmm. So you know, corridors are forced to come up to feed with them. Um, so that's that's the example I've seen in the wild. There are there are others um, out there, but it's not. See, 
Yeah. And right there, you've mentioned an idea for an aquarium that I yeah. virtually guarantee you nobody has done. <laughs> it just doesn't, you just, people just haven't done it. Um, yeah. Or you don't see it commonly anyway. And I, look at what you can learn from that. Yeah. No, I, I, I know a few friends who in the UK, a couple of people who are putting sedge tetras, the hypersprochino lackeys, with uh-huh. uh, Corridoris hastatus because That's they great. see the markings are similar. But again, it's it's one or two friends who are really like fish nerds um, right. <laughs> who have gone and looked at the literature and have asked me questions and then do it. And they're very happy with it. But it's not a, a mainstream thing. Um, and I think it's so obvious like well they've got the same markings yeah of course they hang out together um (laughs) would be great to see that in a tank it it should be i think you know the the thing that i find fascinating too is that how and we've talked about this before too haven't we taking what what we call common fish in the trade like even the neon tetra i remember Mm. a year or two ago when i did a like a a barzea tank and you told me you said yeah you should go with the neons and that it would be just really cool to see a common fish and it was an incredible aquarium to put mm-hmm. these so-called common fishes in a habitat or an aquarium representation of the habitat that really represented it well. The behavior was different. The coloration was different. Yeah. It, just, it just works. And it, there's, there's so many ways to keep fish. That, that's what's so fun about this hobby. Is there's just, just getting outside of the aquarium world and thinking about what actually happens in nature is really remarkable. It opens up so many things. Yep. And, and, I think it it's really cool to create a slice of you know an Amazon oxbow or you know a, a Cameroonian pool in your living room. Yeah. And yeah, it may not look stylized in a, in the terms of an aquascape, but it looks a lot more like what might be found in nature and I think that can bring a lot of satisfaction to someone because it you know it involves research into finding out you know, what plants and materials and which species and what are the water parameters? It, it's like, you know, a project that you, you have a lot of input in and then you're rewarded by the colors and behavior and of the fish and the development of the plants and so on. And it looks beautiful. Um, I yeah. think it can have a lot of, a lot of value engaging in small projects like that. For, do you remember the videos of the Serpe Tetras in that lake I sent you? Yeah. Temporary. Incredible. So, a lake, a tannin-stained lake full of Cabomba uh, ficata, the red lilies, I'm not sure of the species, um, and uh, Mayaca fluviatilis as well, and a kind of hair grass. And these incredibly red serpe tetras, you know, like the most common fish you can find in the hobby in a habitat I'd never seen before and had not encountered and had not imagined them being in. Right. They looked amazing. And it would have been so easy to recreate that for most aquarists. Yeah. The plants are available. Um, the fish is super available. You know, you can put some tannin and botanicals in there. Um, and they colored up beautifully. And, you know, anyone would come in, even a non-fish keeper, and go, oh, wow, look, this kind of red-themed, warm, ambient tank. Sure. These amazing fish. They don't care if it's, you know, labeled biotope or not. As long as it no. looks it's engaging and, and neither should the the person who set up the tanks so. right and it opens up a lot of discussion most important as we talk about the the, the fragility of these habitats when you set up a tank like that it, it begs the questions like oh where do they come from are they found in where are they found oh the amazon oh that's isn't that endangered yeah well this part you yeah. know it, it, it opens up that and i think that's what's so cool that's that's i think the best thing about biotope aquariums is that 
it does provoke conversation among people that may not be fish people. Um, yeah. You know, contests are one thing, but the, the hobby of biotope replication is really interesting. And, uh, you know, but I think the other thing that, that we're starting to see more of, uh, it, it seems like people are managing aquariums in a more realistic manner. In other words, managing the environment uh-huh. of the aquarium more realistically. And I think that's a big step forward too. Not revolutionary in any way, but it's just something that we're seeing more of now where people are paying attention to the details, like what kind of substrate are these are these fish found in? What, yeah. like you said, what plants specifically are found there? You get those kind of questions. And I, I know you get a lot of those questions from people saying, oh, what is found in this habitat? And that, that's like a really big shift in the hobby. I think it's a really good shift in the hobby. It, it's like, um, it's no longer good enough, like to throw in, you know, whatever plants, whatever stuff, you know, like, right. I'm going to do an African tank. I'll throw in a, you know, a couple of Anubias plunge into some gravel and there'll be some, you know, generic. So, well, no, people, are, yeah, people are actually interested in, and, and want to recreate things. Um, I mean, I was talking, uh, you know, George Farmer has, has his book out uh, mm-hmm. recently, came out the aquascaping book. And I'm not such an aquascaping person, but I was reading, uh, reading through the book the other night, and he was talking about aquascaping as an art form. And it's an art form, unlike many others, because it's so diverse and it involves... Right living creatures and it involves the management of the lives of creatures over time but it also involves aesthetics and logistics and technical knowledge and and i thought well you could apply that to a biotope tank just as easily absolutely it is is an art form people who engage in it are producing art with living creatures which is incredible um that's kind of miraculous to create these little universes in a glass box in your you know your denver apartment or whatever right you've got fish and plants that grow in like west africa yeah thriving in your little tank because you've done your research and you know what they need you've replicated as best as you can the habitat in which they are found you are caring for them as good as you know any zoo could possibly do i think that's that's what artists strive to do isn't it it's to try and produce the best that they can to create something beautiful and memorable and engaging. And, and you, you touched on another word that I like to use a lot. And I know, again, <laughs> it seems like we're always talking about similar things uh, at the same mm. time, but management, management mm. of the aquarium. And I don't mean just changing the water and siphoning detritus or whatever. Management in terms of managing an environment, managing yeah. the way the habitat evolves, managing the way the water chemistry might vary during different times of the year, managing temperature, managing, managing lighting, you know, active management of an aquarium. That's a whole nother field that I think is something that we're just starting to see a little more of. Now fish breeders have been doing that for years, right? With quarries, Mm -hmm. they drop the temperature or whatever, or do big water changes. But what about managing an aquarium full time like that? Not just to get the fish to spawn, but to actually replicate what goes on in the habitat, current flow, uh, adding more leaves at a certain time of the year, adding less leaves, but breaking off of feeding for a while, uh, cool. you know, that kind of thing. You and I had that talk about yes. adapting like the concept of pumps for a mangrove tank yes, or freshwater tanks, which experience uh, flood pulse cycles. So exactly. uh, uh, dry and wet seasons, but that could be, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, at least in, in the Pantanal and to a lesser extent in the Amazon, is we talk about the flood season and the dry season. And there's this idea that, you know, okay, so uh, December 20th, 
it starts to rain and the waters rise and they sit four meters higher than they do during the dry season until May when they fall. And now we're in the drought. Not so. It can, we can have periods of drought during the dry season. We can have uh, extreme environmental changes where, okay, the pond or the river is suddenly flooded, but then it dries out, but then the water level rises, then it falls and it rises. I think I showed you those meadows in the Pantanal where I went on Monday morning. It was underwater Monday afternoon. The water level was lower. Tuesday, it was kind of dry. Wednesday, it was flooded again. Thursday, it was back to how it was on Monday, where it was kind of almost flooded. Friday, it was parched. Like, just depending on how much rain fell during the night, during the morning, how much sun there was, which increased evaporation, if it connected to the main river or not. But each time that there was water, and I went in, the fish were there. So they were moving in and out and in and out of these habitats. And there were right. like, pipe cichlids herding their balls of fry through the submerged grasses. Okay, but when it dries out, they've gone somewhere else. But as soon as the habitat is available again, they've come back into it. And so if you could manage in a, a tank to create these shifting dynamics of maybe high water, uh, changes in light, as you mentioned, changes in flow, you'll get, I mean, it, it must be more engaging for the fish. I don't want to say they're having fun, but something in them. Well, they're physiologically like, adapted to those kind of Yeah, things. and you're tapping yeah. into instincts which right. are mimic, which are real. allowing for real behavior to take place. Correct. Which, whether they know it or not, must be more stimulating. They're just hanging right. around in the same flow, the same temperature, and the same, I don't know, maybe, I, maybe the fish don't care, but I have a feeling well, that they would benefit they do. from it. You know, again, it begs the question, why do fishes go in and out of these habitats? You know, I read a study... Um, there's, a, there's an author, I think I might have mentioned him, uh, a researcher by the name of Peter Allen Henderson. He's in the UK, in fact. Um, okay. He's published a couple of really cool papers. He studies like Alachthonus input into you know, Amazonian streams and the fishes yes. in, in the communities and leaf litter communities. So I, I'm obsessed by this guy's writing. But <laughs> he, he was talking about even the trees in some of these flooded forests yeah. are adapted. You know, they drop their they drop their fruit at a certain time of the year. The, the fruit are adapted to either float or sink yeah. so that they can get dispersed throughout the forest by frugivores, by fishes that eat the fruit. Yeah. And the, the fishes are adapted to come into the, the area where it's flooded to look for these, you know, these fruits and things at certain mm-hmm. times of the year. They're following the food. I just can't help but think it would be amazing to manage an aquarium like that. And I, I would bet if you, even if you did what seems to be semi-chaotic, trying to replicate that pantanol flood and desiccation yeah. cycle or whatever you're talking about that you would get some really interesting behaviors maybe maybe even spawning maybe something triggers and tells yeah. the fish oh time to spawn just like killing fish you know the water yeah. levels drop in time to spawn um well, I one way so much might, there. one way you might do it is if you know if you had the luxury of a large tank where you could have yes a steep bank on one side planted heavily with marginal vegetation um it's banned in the uk but in the us i think you can still get it it's Gymnocorymbus uh, spilanthoides, which is this really fast-growing Pantanal plant. I mean, hmm. really fast-growing. And it grows in, in marginal vegetation, and you know it'll eventually escape the tank and take over your house. But it's brilliant nice. because it'll adapt very quickly to being submersed or immersed. So you could plant that in a, in a steep bank on one side, have the water level generally kind of half the depth of the tank, and then okay, one week you just raise the water level and your fish move up into this new planted area and the plants begin to adapt, you know, to being in a submerged state. But then perhaps over time, you might slowly 
reduce the water level again. The fish are forced back into the shallower part. Yep. And then again, and, and just make observations. You know, once, once you fill it, do they start displaying? Do they start exhibiting courtship behaviors? Are they beginning to lay eggs? You know, what, what exactly. is the group dynamics? And, and that's not impossible. I mean, it requires planning. Not at all. Thought, but it could be, it could be done. I think operating our aquariums is, is absolutely not impossible. I think it's not only not impossible, I think it's something that we need to do more of. I, that's what I love about the, the, this urban agapo thing that I play with so much because you are literally mimicking the, the environmental changes that take place during the wet and yeah. dry seasons. You're operating the tank and yeah. you can follow the exact rhythms of what, you know, you pull up weather reports from, you know, various places in South America and say, I'm going to follow what's going on this day, raise yeah. the temperature of the water, whatever. Or you could do it on your own, but but the idea is you're you're operating, you're actively managing the the, the function of the tank, and I think that is so interesting. I mean, again, breeders have done this for decades with fishes, but yes. we just don't do it in general fish keeping. We always do it to get some expected result, but to do it just to do it to replicate the habitat, I think is just fascinating. I mean, that's what I love about the research that you've done as both a scientist and hobbyist. Mm. Is that you bring that hobbyist sort of wonder to it by going, wow, this environment was filled on Thursday and now it's dry. And then <laughs> it's going to be, you know, the hobbyist looks at it differently than the ecologist and both can learn from it. <laughs> That's what's so, to me, it's, what's so fascinating. It's, it's funny. My, my wonderful supervisor in Brazil, uh, Dr. Fernando Carvalho, who is the, he's like the oh, authority yes. of the Hyphosobricon family. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful scientist and ichthyologist. And, um, we would have these discussions where I would raise thoughts and ideas and suggestions based on my background as a, as an aquarist, as a hobbyist. Mm-hmm. And he would say, I hadn't, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that. That's oh, okay. So perhaps, you know, and, um, and then he would raise points as a scientist and a taxonomist and a, you know, an ecologist in many ways that I wasn't so familiar with, but right. instantly made sense. Like, duh, I've seen that take place in the aquarium i've seen it when i worked at london zoo in, in larger tanks um and that sort of cross uh cross pollination yeah of ideas and i think one of the things like um that perhaps a lot of hobbyists don't know is how much material is available uh online academic Hello. yes yeah so if people want to go on like uh, sci-hub or cielo um, cielo is great yeah, ResearchGate really is really, I mean, yep. I'm lucky because I have the, the university pass, yep. but That's if nice. you type in like Tetras or, you know, Dada Karasin or something, almost anything. you will get so, yes, yeah, so many papers on, you know, behavior, on feeding, on yep. ecology, on, you know, the biology of the, you know, the black neon Tetra. In, yeah, and it's there and you I, read it and then you go, oh, okay, now I, and often there'll be photos. There's perhaps some water parameters. Stuff that you really things. want. Yeah. I really literally important. was able to replicate the Tucano Tetra environment because I found the type paper and oh, wow. the discussion on the habitat and the creek where it was found and the water sample. They gave all that information. I'm like, this is a gold mine of information yeah. for a hobbyist. But we have to be willing to read some of the scientific, cool. the metristic data and things that are a little bit, you know, scary for some of us that aren't educated in it but you, you have to well, push through it and you can learn it and it's really fascinating stuff it is and and there's another outlet i mean in many ways it's uh you know 
it's a it's a dangerous uh charge to ride but um facebook right so at the moment i need information on west african habitats and congo basin habitats i can't profess to be an expert on those things i have a vague you know understanding of right the species that are involved i have a bit bit better grasp of the biotopes um so i go on the uh the catfishes of africa facebook group and i said hey guys i'm i need some information on the following uh, biotopes and species you know does anyone have any data or photos or first-hand accounts or experience i've been inundated yeah i mean there's one guy who's you know freshwater ecologist operating in cameroon angola um wow. and uh then there's someone else in, in congo someone else in cameroon who's reached out to me and i'm being sent photos of you know anubias in the wild um uh bulbatus habitats uh right lampi lampi killifish biotopes like that amazing i wouldn't f- you know, I said this to my mother the other day. I said, we've got the greatest reference library in the world on Facebook because all those images and information, I won't find those in a in a physical library. I wouldn't right. even find many of them in academic journals online. But, you know, Bob, who's been posted in, Kans- in Kinshasa and is teaching English to kids on his weekends, gets on a motorcycle, goes down to the local creek, takes right. photos and, and some and his, his palm meter and his pH meter. Right. And then has that information and i only know it because i sent out a message on facebook and yet that information is, i'm now using to okay i'm going to plan exactly how to do this biotope and i've learned new things and what exactly. fish and, stuff, and it's it's free you know i've i've had so many people approach me the same kind of thing like uh i, I have a friend in the congo uh, thomas Manessi. do you know thomas so uh, he, thomas and i have been have been talking okay, this morning thomas is one of the guys who He's got his amazing photos me. yeah yeah Brian Russell Tate, Thomas Minessi, and oh. uh, I think it's Martin Kayamans who is the crib yes. prevention specialist. Yeah. yeah. So the three of them are, are, are on the case for me now. Amazing people and amazing information. <laughs> and, and like Thomas, he goes out every weekend and just takes pictures of these amazing habitats. And like, so an hour before the... you and I started talking, Thomas and I were chatting and he was mm-hmm. like, because I'm, I'm familiar with karst habitats in South America. Which are, no one said, has duplicated a karst, right? Well, not really. And, but he said, oh, so do you, of course, you know, the, the foie habitat, F-W-A, uh, in Congo. And I said, mm-hmm. no. He said, how could you not know the karst uh, lakes of foie? And I said, well, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I know South American stuff. Well, it's this uh, crystal lakes and rivers full of uh, <laughs> huge beds of Potomagetan. And 95% of the fish are endemic. And I said, when can I come? And he said, oh, well, we'll have to arrange. And I said, I'm serious. You know, if I can get the, the funds together, I will do a West Africa and Central Africa trip. Because, Expedition. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He's enough. the guy to go with. No, I don't know and, and, and I want to go and see it. That's what's so amazing is, you know, that's the work of, of a dedicated hobbyist and nature enthusiast. That's um, <laughs> we've been trying to get connect to get him on the podcast that'll be fun actually it'd be fun to have both you guys on at the same time get up a real well, conversation I'll, I'll tell him we were talking and a shout out to him that would be amazing it's so wonderfully helpful to me already oh he's amazing yeah and, i love um, that guy but his pictures the, are amazing too oh yeah his photos well this is the thing like um russell brian tate who i got in touch with as well he had this amazing drone shot of oh, congo wow. river and i said oh russell you know is there any way i could use this photo for a project and he was like, oh, that photo's naff. I've got, I've got way better photos than that. And sends me <laughs> all these other incredible photos. That's and awesome. I was like, this is, this is the kind of uplifting element of, of the biotope hobby. Like, on the one hand, there can be a bit of, you know, 
oh, your plant is from the west bank of the river and yeah. the fish are from the east bank of the river. Like, come on. Don't like, make me vomit. Right. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's people who, you know, they have busy lives. They've got things going on. You send them a message saying, hey, do you have any photos of this particular? And they provide you with this incredible resource yeah. of, of data and information and observations. And I think isn't if the internet is terrible for 99% of all things, for that 1% of, you know, connecting people with people and educating each other. Absolutely. We're so lucky to be alive at this time. I mean, 40 years ago, it was done by correspondence. I mean, information traveled so slowly and and things were mysterious. People kept secrets because they didn't want to write it down. And, you know, so now it's just, it's so much, so much more information. And And it's funny, you talk about the thing between scientists and hobbyists. A real quick story. I remember back in my, coral propagation days we were at the marine aquarium conference in north america and dallas and you know all the coral propagators and all the aquarium mm-hmm. geeks are there and we had a, our booth with you know fragments of you know corals that we grew out in our facility and stuff the keynote speaker was jean-michel cousteau and oh, wow. he stopped <laughs> by our booth and we had a long conversation he literally said he's looking around you know here he's talking about saving coral and saving the, he's like i had no idea that this was being done that people are making you know, captive bred, uh, captive propagated fragments of corals and keeping them in aquariums. And this has been going on wow. for 20 years. He just didn't know. And wow. I remember coincidentally enough, seeing uh, an, uh, a documentary when I was on a plane one day and it was about, it was a National Geographic or one of those, or BBC World or one of those things where they were talking about scientists in the Red Sea were trying to propagate corals to, to restore reefs and how this is going to be an incredible challenge. And I was seeing the way they were doing it. And I'm like, oh my God, you guys are, Clue. I mean, I'm thinking we do this <laughs> every day. You guys are like working with fish bowls that horrible. And I'm thinking because there's not a lot of there wasn't at the time a lot of back and forth discussion between academics and hobbyists, and we could both learn from each other. And I agree, hobbyists make a lot of dumb assumptions sometimes. We also make some darn good guesses and and hunches. Yeah. And academics could learn, as you said, from what we're doing too, because it gives them insight that that they don't have. And I think that's what's so amazing is the citizen scientists has never yeah. been more valuable. You're seeing this in your own living room. And yeah. you don't have to travel and risk malaria and go out to the jungle. And, you know, you can do it in the comfort of your own living room. And that's and it, an amazing thing that we have. I love that term, the citizen scientist. And I think yeah. of, you know, you know Wallace and, and, and Darwin to yeah. an extent. And um, all these other sort of 19th century characters who, by and large, were sort of wealthy you know, upper middle right. class men. They didn't need to worry about income too much. Um, some of them were very wealthy. Some of them were, were, were pretty poor. I was reading about a fantastic 19th century botanist um, from Scotland, whose name I now forget, who you know, <laughs> grew up in poverty in Yorkshire, was a school teacher, ended up getting out to the Amazon and becoming, you know, the, the authority on Amazonian botany. Oh, wow. Um, died in relative poverty again back in Yorkshire. But his contribution was incredible. And... Yeah. And nowadays we have, again, citizen scientists, doesn't matter your class, particularly your background, your, you know, your anything. Right. If you have an interest, you can go out there, you can make observations, you can make discoveries. People sit in front of their tanks all the time. Correct. People go and do their own research. People encounter things. as, And it's all valuable information. It's open that, source and everybody's invited right. to come along. You know, that's what's so beautiful about the aquarium hobby right now. I think um, I th- it's interesting that, uh, you know, I, I mentioned it doesn't matter so much your background or your class. There are some limitations in terms of, you know, this isn't a cheap hobby for many people. No. Um, 
even even in biotope you know if you want you, you could do it with play sand and collected leaves and some some uh, collected branches and you know you could do it in an old scratch tank with low lights and you can still produce a really cool tannin stained amazon biotope absolutely you've got outlay on fish and filters and heaters and things yeah. and that's one of the things that can put people off um right but on the other hand, you know, like the aquascaping scene, that's the really the high energy tanks where there's a lot of money involved often. Right. Um, and it says, you know, for me, it says, well, look, if you really want to keep plants and fish, and you don't have to sp- have spend as much as you would on a, on a high end aquascape. Have a look at setting up some biotope tanks, you know, um, where you, the, the investment doesn't have to be so high and you may use different right. things. So, like, I love Hillstream tanks. Hillstream tanks need two things, a decent pump and medium lighting, rocks, some gravel. That's it, pretty much. Right. None of which are terribly difficult to get. None of which which are too expensive. You know, you get a cheap air pump as well. Um, Many of them don't need to be heated particularly, so your heating costs are down if if your running costs are up because of the pump. Um, And there's a wealth of fish that are really cool, uh, have interesting behavior that are out there. People can have a go at setting that up, and you can do that in a in a battered old uh, tank or a cheap off the shelf tank. Right, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Um, and that's what's uh, led to my love of small. I don't say my love, but I used to hate like so called you know nano tanks, little tiny tanks, yeah. because of the way people kept them. But now I'm realizing the value of them in that not only does it get more people involved, but it also creates an opportunity to experiment with some of these crazy ideas that you'd be much yeah. happier to do it in a you know, a six liter tank instead of a 400 liter tank, yeah. you know, because it's a lot less work. It's like, if things fail, you can get out of it quickly and, and, and re- retool. And, and I think that that, you know, that gives everybody an opportunity to try all these, what would normally be considered out there kind of experiments yeah. and see what results I can get. And I think well, that's exciting. Think of like, um, I know you guys thinking gallons. I can't think of gallons. Yeah. Say um, a yeah. uh, 20 or 30 liter 20 liter nano tank, right? Right, five gallons, yeah. Right, put some floating plants in it, fill it, fill it, fill it with leaf litter, mm-hmm. and have four or five sparkling gouramis, Trichopsis pusilla. And as the leaf litter decays, you'll get microorganisms growing on them. You might put a few shrimp in there. Those sparkling gouramis will start hunting the little creatures in the leaf litter and can be in a tiny tank, but it's a biotope. There's yep. fish exhibiting really cool behavior, they're beautiful fish. It's mysterious. You know, you can play with the shadows of the light and floating plants and maybe some marginal plants, you know, and it could be tiny. It could fit on a desk and yet be a really engaging display. It doesn't have to be a huge outlay. It doesn't have to be big. It's just knowing. Same with killifish. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why the killifish hobby, in my opinion, and boy, I'm opinionated on everything, aren't I? But the, (laughs) the reason why the killifish hobby is always frustrated and they can't seem to get new people into the game. And they're like, wonder how do they grow? I always see these discussions on the American killifish association, a Facebook yeah. page. And how do we get new members? You get new members by sharing with them the environments, which the killifish come from temporary pools, small rivulets of water, tiny little ponds and show people that you can actually replicate the habitat and put the fish in there permanently and have them spawn and reproduce and live out their life cycle. And, Yes, you can seriously breed things and have little, you know, plastic shoeboxes filled with water and air stones. And that's not exciting to everybody. And I think that's the key to getting a lot more people into some of these interesting niches in the hobby is showing them that the the setup 
is just as fun as the fish. And, you know, I, 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 I agree with what you're saying. I've, I'm actually going tomorrow morning to pick up some um, Lothobranchius scunteri. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, which is for a project. And I also should be getting some uh, Alpha Semion, um, uh, I forgot the last name, but other nice uh, killifish, African killifish. By the Tatum or one of those? One of yeah, those ones. beautiful. And, and um, I'm excited because these are not fish I've kept before. Yeah, and, and they're African. <laughs> and they're African. So, and, like Epiplades, to... that's a great genus too. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I'm. This is the thing. I, I've been keeping fish since I was eight years old. I'm 33 now, and I've been keeping them seriously since I was about 19 or 20. Um, and yet tomorrow I'm going to collect some fish I've never kept before, and I'm going to really enjoy yeah. doing it. And 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 this is the great, like you said, you know, there's always new things to be discovered. There's new your journeys, adventures to be had. Um, when we mentioned nanotanks, there's such a range of small, suitable species out there these days. Absolutely. Like, my philosophy has always been lots of little fish in big tanks. Boy, we are but, the same. You know we're the well, same on that. I exactly. 100% agree. But sometimes the reality for a person is, well, I can't have a big tank. I can only do a nanotank. Okay, we'll get Still really fish. tiny fish <laughs> and put them in that. Like a little exactly. mosquito rasboras, you know, the Brigitte, spice rasboras. Yep. You know, get a couple yeah. of things like um, another one that your listeners might enjoy is. So we talked about that flooded Pantanal meadow, mm-hmm. um, and I think I showed you the the Rathbun's tetra. After your yes, yes, tonight. the fire. Mm-hmm. They call it the fire tetra or something like that. Yeah, I think they call fire, fire, fire tetra. Tetra. Green fire tetra. Yeah, yeah. green fire tetra. Um, and they move into these flooded meadows and they graze off um, the algae on the newly flooded uh, plants because in the first days and weeks of, of being underwater. Um, the, the the water is very clear. There's high sunlight penetration. There's all these terrestrial plants suddenly underwater. There's this algae bloom on their leaves, and these tetras move in and they eat algae. And, and in the hobby, there's nothing to. No one ever says, "Oh, actually, they they eat quite a lot of green material." But I've got film of them doing exactly that. So if someone had a small, like a nano tank, you know, that's, okay, well, fill your nano tank with plants like either the. Um, the gymnocorymbus, which I mentioned, or right. uh, Persicaria polygonum species, which yep. are kind of, they look exactly like what you see in the flooded meadows, and put in um, four or five of the, the Rathbun's tetras because they like, you know, being in small groups. Um, they're very peaceful with each other and just make it really densely planted and they will wriggle through that and you'll you'll see them every now and then. They'll, they'll appear and they'll feel really comfortable and colored. And you could do that in a really quite small little, you know, 30 centimeter by 30 centimeter tank or something. It would look amazing. But, well, that's, it, that's the urban agapo I did. Flood the, yeah. grow the, grow the, the Pantanal meadow, you know, plant some, even past pollen grass, grow some grass, grow some yep. of the plants that you talked about, inundate it, let the algae bloom and put those fish yep. in there. And manage and them for a time good. and take them out, put them somewhere else, let it dry again. You know, that's the fun thing. There's so well, many you, things we can do. Do you remember I showed you a photo of one of the, the Rathbuns that I collected, I think? Yes. Yes, you did. Super, Stunning. Super green. Like, yeah. Like I didn't even know that that's what it was. I, I didn't know they got that green. I'd <laughs> well, never seen it that color. Because they're eating all this algae. You know? like, <laughs> right. And they're and literally they eating the algae. Yeah. You see them in the hobby and they, like, they can be quite red belly, but they can be quite washed out in the body, even in an established tank. It's like, well, yeah, because they need to eat more green material. So you, uh, you may be able to get them to eat spirulina you know flake or something you else. You know what's but... going to happen now, Ty? What? Here, here's the alert. Every planted tank enthusiast that has an algae problem is suddenly going to start 
putting a demand well, for those fishes now, and they're going to say, because I, Ty was saying. <laughs> I will tell you what, though. You've created the flying fox of South America. That's what you've just well, done. Well, <laughs> I tell you what, a lot of people who might listen, or a lot of people in the hobby who they might say, actually, I do notice that when they're in my tank, they kind of go around, and I see them picking at the leaves, and they sort of slip in and out of the vegetation. They, they seem to graze a little bit, and they're always picking at stuff. And they do that. And I think right. they are searching for algae. And, and people may have seen that from their own, uh, the specimens well, in their own tanks. So I, I agree. The observations that we make are really important. You know, you know, the fish that I see that eat biofilms and fungal growths off of, off yeah. of uh, off, or pencil fish. Pencil fish yes. are nonstop feeding on this stuff. And I, I used to think, oh, they're just looking for food. They're, they're literally consuming fungal growth and biofilm on the seed pods and on the wood nonstop all day long that the the hockey stick pencil fish yeah uh, equus Mm -hmm. it's it swims at that's this angle because it's angled to feed on the undersides of branches versus versus the top of branches which will be foraged by other things but also it would make you more vulnerable yeah well it would make you more vulnerable to predators from above whereas if you can hang underneath the branch and pick at the detritus and algae and alcohols growing on it you can't be seen and grabbed from above by a bird or a heron that's awesome see so, that's interesting be- yeah. because i always thought and i've always read that that oblique swimming angle was an adaptation to catching falling insects and stuff which they do eat but yeah i think what you're mentioning makes more sense because well, th- having seen their behavior 90 percent of the time they're not at the surface no. it, they're they're picking on wood and stuff like that you got to remember the surface in the wild is like, it's, it's, it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. The surface is where predators from above can see you. Predators from below can see you silhouetted against it. That's why fish that occupy the surface, so hatchet fish, have all these adaptations right. to, to escape predators quickly. Or they're found, for instance, like lampires. They're normally found in very large numbers. So it's harder, you know, otherwise you'll be picked off very quickly. Well, I I found a paper. I think you're going to love this. You probably knew this, but that like the neon tetra and the cardinal tetra have the coloration that they do because when viewed from underneath that, I forgot the angle, they blend in with the sky. So the fish predators from below can't see them. And the birds have more trouble seeing them from the surface because they appear brown and blend in with the bottom. I I love that. And like, that's cool. They reflect the light, you know, and it's, if, if, that's why if you watch your cardinals, your neons, and they go into a shady part of the tank, they kind of disappear. And then they come out and they erupt into color yeah. because they're just reflecting the light that's available. Um, so, yeah, I suppose if you were viewing them up against the sky, they, they, they sort of disappear. All these little adaptations are, and I, I think I know the article you're talking about. I read it a while ago. Which is something yeah. like, why yeah. are cardinal tetras the color they are sort of thing? Literally, yeah. It was a simple and, article. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I like this with um, with silverfish. So my little Hyphosobrichonilakis, which I have in my tank in front of me now, they have these silver bodies and they have a little bit of blue around the eye. And, mm-hmm. you know, they can go sometimes a little bluish color. The females are slightly green, like malachite green on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the wild, I've collected them under beds of water hyacinth, the Icornia crassipis, which is this kind of shadow realm because nothing can grow underneath the beds of the floating plants. So you have this open substrate, then you have this very dark open water column, and then this very busy tangled network of roots at the surface where you find many small tetras which are hunting 
all the insects, terrestrial insects that live on the floating vegetation and that fall and stumble into the water. So these little silver tetras, like the alakis, you find them there because they disappear. They reflect the darkness around them and they're gone. And only if they swim into a beam of sunlight do they suddenly appear. And that's why I quite like using silverfish in tanks where you create light light and dark areas because you can put them on display and then hide them every time they... They go into a dark, shady bit, they're gone, and then they suddenly erupt forth, and it, it just adds a dynamism to the display. Yeah. And you don't need to put really bright, colorful fish in to make it attractive. You just need to think about how you're going to do that. And if you were There's doing a some... with, like, botanicals and overhanging branches, and, you know, you can create those shadow shadow realms. Right. There's a beauty in subtlety. Things. Yeah. Yeah. Less is more. You know, <laughs> I, this, this it's, it's fun that we've kind of went on this conversation of the unexpected behaviors among fishes that we think do something else. I, I, because that's something that we just, again, as aquarists, we're, if we set up the system correctly for them, we can observe these behaviors and really yeah. study them. Um, and I was going to ask you, I've been meaning to ask you this forever. I don't know why in all of our conversations, I've never asked you this. What is the one fish that you are really looking forward to keeping that you have not kept yet? Is there a fish or a type of fish or genius um, or something so i'm quite excited and why? <laughs> about well i'm 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 going to be working with quite a few african species in the next couple of months that i've not mm-hmm. kept before so the uh firemouth epiplates the epiplates de Gethi. Yeah, i have the getty monrovia you know what i should figure out a way to send you eggs <laughs> please I love to do, i've been i'm there my pride and joy i love those fish well i've never kept fish. them i've always thought oh, they were really cool I've never quite had the tank for them. Um, and I, I like killifish, you know, but I like group kill, social killifish, really. I'm not right. such kind of like, you know, a pair of something sulking. So you've got lamp eyes and those kind of. Yeah. This is, so I'm going to have some of them. Um, I'm also going to keep a tetra that I've never had to keep, been able to keep, which is the Arnoldichthys, the, um, the African red eye tetras. Oh, yeah. Basically, yeah. you know, they look kind of prehistoric. Yeah, like, they do. Amazing. Yeah. So. I think those two are the next ones, which have really got me quite sort of buzzing a little bit. Um, That's cool. They're unknown quantities to me. I haven't kept them in in in, the, in at home or in, in a you know in a professional setting yet. I'm going to learn things about them. I'm going to have to adapt uh, my tanks to them. Um, they're going to you know be added onto my my fish keeping resume if you like. Oh, yes, yeah. that's what I'm familiar with. And the other thing that I'm really excited about. I'm going to be, and probably the most exciting, I'm going to be keeping a group of uh, elephant nose fish. Oh, wow. A group. That's cool. Yeah. Because That's when, I was, cool. when I was a kid, I remember very vividly buying one, being sold one by the unscrupulous store in yeah. town. And they told me to feed it, you know, tube effects. So I got given some right. dry tube effects cubes. And it lived for like three days. It had cost Ugh. me most of my monthly pocket money and it died. They were really expensive back then. Yeah. They yeah. were expensive. And then when I worked at London Zoo, we had a big tank, which was like maybe a two meter deep front to back and then a meter across and a meter tall. And it was an African display tank and it just had lamp eyes and elephant noses and the lamp eyes were breeding. It was you would have loved it. It was tannins, 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 leaf litter, branches, really dark, hardly any lighting. Cool. The, the lamp eyes were just swarming at the surface. The most inbred collection of lamp eyes you'd ever seen. <laughs> and then 
over the bottom was a group of about 30 elephant noses oh, who were wow. just racing around all the time between the sunken material and the branches, foraging really happy in the low light habitat. So I kept them there, but I hadn't had them at home. So now I'm going to have uh, hopefully a group of them, not not 30, but at least a, a number of them where I can observe them happily foraging um, out, uh, visible and, and engaging in natural behavior. And the challenge will be setting up the tank and, and getting it ready for them and, and having it, having all the elements in place that they do Long exhibit. before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that they feel confident um, because that, that, yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge and it's exciting. It's kind of makes me nervous too, but yeah. yeah. But, but, but you know, it's, it's it, it, interesting thing about that idea of like pre stocking a tank or preparing it for the fish. It's, it's not, it makes it easier. I mean, yeah. literally I told you many times about my experiment with the green nails where I literally did not feed them for yeah. eight months and they spawned and they were fat and happy <laughs> because the tank was set up with decomposing leaf litter and a, twigs yeah. and stuff like that and it just it i firmly believe that we as aquarists can generate to some extent a, a, an internal ecology of food web within our aquariums yeah. by well, inoculating them with with leaves and fungal growths and maybe some worms and insects i, I think we can do that well i think and, i think i'm allowed to say this here that you're actually going to have a part to play in this elephant nose display yeah i'm excited and um and you are you are furnishing the the materials the botanical materials yeah. for it um so we're going to have a chance to use tannin products and cool. and show them off with these fish and i'm i'm really excited about using that and I, yeah i'm excited about seeing those fish in a group because it hasn't been done yeah. and i'll tell you what my my secret fantasy fish is I, and i forgot to ask you this in your travels in south america did you ever encounter any knife fish of any kind in, yeah. in the habitat uh, what, brachy, what species um Oh gosh, Bombilla, Bracky, Bracky something, Bombilla, um, Gym, Gymnotus carapo. The big um, ones, yeah. yeah. What about Hypopagus? I forgot how to pronounce that name. The little tiny ones, they're small. Have yeah. you ever ran into those? I haven't encountered that, those. See, I have collected uh, Ramphithis. They oh, sort of yeah. got, looks, got the head of an elephant nose fish. Yeah, yeah, they're weird looking fish. When you had it in the nets. Um, oh, wow. And it might and, be in uh, South America. It just might. Yeah, be. Well, <laughs> you often they were. There were loads of water snakes and coral snakes and stuff, and <laughs> you had to be careful. And um, you would often see the Gymnotus carapo at night with a torch. Sure. Um, unfortunately, they were also used as live bait fish, uh, <laughs> fishing in the pants. Uh, but I saw <laughs> most of them. Bad but yeah, the we would. We would really, and one of the things you might enjoy with knife fish is my professor showed us a technique where you take a microphone. I don't know if I mentioned this one. You take the microphone and you take the the cable and you cut the cable before where the jack is and you expose the wires and you tie the wires to a cane and you put it in the water underneath the beds of floating plants and it picks up the electromagnetic frequency of the fish and emits it as sound through the microphone. And depending on the species, the sound and the frequency is different. So he showed us, he put it under the water and we heard this, you know, faint tick, 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 tick. And he said, oh, this is Gymnotus, you know, so, and then he put it somewhere else and you heard sort of, ah, this is Brachypompola, Bombilla, whatever. He had learned based on their frequencies that had been examined in in studies to 
listen to which species was which he couldn't see but using a stick and a microphone cable awesome. it's just like yeah. whale calls right i mean you can yeah sort of wow see so is, that I, I think... is that is that your dream fish knife fish? well yeah well i love knife fish i might the black ghost knife fish the classic is always one of my yeah. favorite of all time fishes but there's so many interesting knife fish and you know, unfortunately, I bought bought that book, that uh, field guide to fishes of Amazonia, oh, yeah. and they got and of course it has all these species that have never come into the hobby. And I'm like, oh, this fish only gets 15 centimeters. Like, <laughs> why isn't that in the hobby? Well, probably because it's impossible yeah. to find. It never comes out at night, and it's gray. But I'm thinking the there's got to be some smaller knife fish that would be amazing in a in a really realistic. Agamania triliniata. Yes. So money has all kinds of cool fish in that genome. Well, I would collect them quite frequently in, in the Pantanal. Again, often from underneath the, in that shadow world underneath the floating plants mm-hmm. uh, and marginal plants. They're shy. Um, they need, you know, soft water, tannin, lots of structural habitat for them to move through. Right. Um, you can have groups of them together. Um, and they would be a really interesting fish to have in a sort of biotope, like tannin stained biotope. Wow. Just the way they move is really cool. Um I'd love and, to do a knife fish only thing. That'd yeah, be amazing. Well, yeah. We had some in London Zoo, we had some Agamania Trinilliata in a really? tank with loads of palm fronds. Do you remember? Oh my, God, yeah. Well yeah. you're the palm frond and, king. And they would swim like backwards and forwards, like reversing through the palm frond stems mm. and, and yeah, through the, cool. the leaves. And it was sort of because they were shy, like you'd see this head come out from between some palm leaves and it would kind of look around and be like, no, and just reverse back straight in. <laughs> And I always had that sound of like a reversing truck in my head, like this. Sort of... <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember feeding my black ghost knifefish by hand. Yeah. You know, it was when I, oh. I I raised him from. He was probably, oh gosh, two and a half inches. So what's that in centimeters? I'm terrible with metric conversion, but um, but it was a small fish. It was the size of your finger, basically. Yeah. And I raised him to till he was about nine inches long. You know, I had him all through like the latter part of elementary school into high school before I finally uh, gave him away because I couldn't, wow. I, I grew my tank. Uh, but, and, th- and this guy would literally eat from my hands and I never forgot that fish. And I never, it was the most expensive fish I'd ever purchased up to that <laughs> time. It took me months to save for it. And that was when they used to be collected in the wild. They weren't, you know, yeah. bred in ponds in Asia. And it was just such an amazing fish. And, and see, I was charmed by the original, uh, the Inez book, uh, Exotic Aquarium Fishes. And it mm. talked about how, you know, this was, you know, the, 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 the natives, you know, it sounded very derogatory, but the natives in America feel that the, the spirits of their dead take up residence in the black ghost knifefish and they're afraid of this. But, you know, it was, it was the oh, 1930s wow. kind of Indiana Jones kind of. Yeah. Chi- and I'm like, I got to have this fish. And, and it was like such a rare fish in those days. And in the 60s, it got more popular. And, and now it's, you know, you can buy them for nothing. But wow, what a cool fish. We had them at London Zoo. And it was the mm. first time I appreciated how far they can open their mouths it's because amazing huge mouth yeah the males would they were in a, a four meter tank uh, like a amazon wow submerged logs plex oh. big harrisons and these knife fish were in there and the males would come out and they would lock jaws with each other in really they, they fought it actually got quite tense wow. we were like we need to separate them in a four meter tank fights. wow yeah because they were like a foot and a bit long oh those are big those that's yeah. the maximum size practically yeah. they were chunky and and i realized i saw this movement going on i moved over to the tank and i thought my god they the jaws were completely wide open like sort of scissor wide open 
and they'd locked wow. them against each other and they were spinning around and, and, and spiraling. And, um, was it a mock battle or was it like a real, they were tearing well, each other up? It was, it was quite rough. And this is why we got to the point when we were like, because uh, we always had to do a welfare review. Right. Um, you Every morning you went and you observed the tanks and you looked for anything that, you know, was, was perhaps going to ring some alarm bells. And then we'd always have a meeting each week. Like, has anyone got any ob- observations of something? And I said, well, I, I saw these guys, you know, fighting and they looked pretty aggressive. And they said, oh, actually, yeah, it might be a case that we need to separate them. Uh, <laughs> wow, um, because, well, in a four meter long tank. Yeah, because if oh. one of them, like, even though there was lots of wood and, and places to hide, it does get to the point that if you get one who's dominant, um, yeah. this, the, the other one can't escape their line of sight and is constantly attacked. And if they're evenly matched, they will eventually, like, battle each other to the death, basically. Um, And this was something I had no knowledge of. And um, often when I see see them in shops, and I think people don't know what they're in for. Right. Well, I knew that you can't keep... It was always said you can't keep them together. Largely, it was because, you know, they get big. But but also, the thought was they, you know, they irritate each other, electronic, you know, electronic warfare or whatever they do. But, But yeah. But that's like knockdown, drag out kind of fights. That's something that I would not have expected. It, it, was, so. it was rough, and wow, it's funny. Like uh, on a small scale, I saw that with my. I mean, the the name gives it away. My wrestling half beaks, the demogenes. Yeah, yeah. they really do wrestle, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Except it was my yeah. the female grabbed the male and was like oh, spinning wow. him round. I don't know whether she was fed up with him because you know <laughs> it, she, they were two rescues that I got in Brazil, basically, from a tank where they'd been put in a tank with uh, baby Oscars. So they were oh, being... Wow. Yeah, they were pretty... They'd been eaten, all of them, sadly. And I, there were two left, so I was like, I'll take them, I'll take them. And um, this male would kind of come up to the female, like, all right, you know, how you doing? And um, she would just turn around and grab him and start <laughs> spinning him around, like, you know, no. <laughs> Ladies, um, don't, take, don't get that idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, but it, it, it's interesting, though, that happens with a lot of fishes. Like speaking of Epiplates, my Epiplates stegeti monrovier that I've yeah. grown from, you know, eggs and so forth. I have right now I just have uh, in my house, in my home tank, I have a male, uh, two males and a female because the sex ratio yeah. is always wacky. But you get more males and eventually the males killed all the other males until we have two. Oh, and wow. now I've got one female. And she's out, she outgrew the males. This was really interesting. She blossomed into a female long before the males started really, you could tell they were going to be males, but they just weren't, uh, you know, fully dimorphic yet. And she would beat the crap out of the males for a long time until at the point where I thought maybe this is just a really ugly male uh, until finally <laughs> the males started blossoming. And there's no mistaking the male and female in that species. She's, she's a female. And she was just a particularly aggressive, larger female. And um, it's funny to see them now trying to court her, but it wasn't so funny earlier when she would literally knock the crap out of them. You're thinking, wow, well, what's I'll, going I'll on? Be, I'll be asking you for, for advice then when I set up the tank for them. Um, Absolutely. You know, because My you've favorite got to kill it. Yeah, like I, I imagine lots of floating plants and, and shelter and, you know, try and break up yeah. lines of sight and, and give them places to hang out. Um, yeah. It's, it's funny, you know, many of our community fish or yeah as labeled community fish like right they yeah, are quite rough rough with each other um i i've recently got a bunch of um hyphesobrachal swaglisai the red phantom tetras oh yeah they're, they're gorgeous they're lovely and 
they're in a big tank. They're in my one. And they're little by... fish, right? I mean, they're, yeah. they're not big fish. Fourteen yeah. of them in a one fifty by sixty by forty five centimeter it's a big tank. tank. Yeah. Four hundred liters. Yeah. Um, and um, they they kind of tread each other's fins pretty regularly. Like you see a male kind of limping in, and his finage wow. is is damaged, and then like. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, it's kind of restored and he goes back into the fray and it, they keep <laughs> roughing each other up quite badly. And interesting. You don't it's interesting that. That when you, yeah. And when you see them in Amano tanks, you often see them in very large numbers. And I wonder if this is perhaps based on his experience of, you know, in order to diffuse aggression and make sure yeah. no one gets that badly picked on too much, you just have tons of them. Um, but I had thought, you know, in a large, heavily planted tank, you know, 14 or so, a uh, number of males, number right. of females. But they really tear chunks out of each other. And and these are the sort of observations that, okay, well, if I do another tank for them, I'm now going to make allowances for that. I'm going to think about how to, you know, how can I better do this? And how, how do they diffuse that? Yeah. Um, That's interesting. But see, these but, are observations that you 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 have to keep a group of fish to, to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is why I'm, I'm really excited about the products I'm working on at the moment, where there will be a number of tanks which are almost species tanks. So they'll either just have one or two species in large numbers of those fish. And I think that's when I will start seeing the most natural behaviors being exhibited. And it'll teach me things that I haven't that I have yet to learn and and observations and and just add to my my repertoire. Well it might also correlate some of the things you saw in the wild too, right? Because if you're using larger groups and these fishes are found naturally in groups you'll yeah. see that behavior or will you see that behavior in the aquarium? Maybe they won't act the same way. Maybe they will. But that's, I think what's so fascinating to me is that there's so much to unlock with these fishes. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's perhaps why our hobby is, is, is so wonderful and so appealing to many people because as we, it, it's, it's got so many moving parts to it. You know, there's the beauty, there's the technical elements, there's the changes in terms of, the way fish grow and develop and the way our plants grow and develop. Um, there's the behavioral elements. There's the learning curves. There's yeah. the satisfaction and reward. There can be drama. There can be heartache. Absolutely. You know, all of this. I mean, these, an aquarium can be like a Greek tragedy, you know, it can, <laughs> right there in your living room. Exactly. Yeah. If it doesn't yeah. go quite right. Um, yeah. And uh, I think it's, I think we're very lucky that this is the hobby that we've fallen in. I mean, you know, yeah, not to not to put anyone down, but I'm kind of glad I'm not into like motorcycle restoration. You know, I'm sure <laughs> right. if I was, sure fascinating. I, would, right. I would get my kicks out of it in a different way. And I'm sure it would be right. satisfying. But this is the hobby that I'm into. And I'm, well, I'm very pleased that I am. There's something really amazing about seeing a live animal, particularly one which was maybe collected in the wild. Yeah. And it's been through so much to get to you. And then you're able to give it conditions that it rewards you with by... Yeah, displaying good health and vigor, maybe spawning. And you're thinking, gosh, I have this animal under my care and I've yeah. done everything I can to learn about what it needs and I'm supplying it and it's responding. That's a really great feeling. And, and there, of course, there's an equal number of times when you do that and the fish dies. But yeah, it's it, I, I often think that when we talk about challenging fishes, that it's not that the fish is particularly challenging, but that we haven't learned what it needs yet. Yeah. I don't think there's impossible fishes, only impossible, only ill-informed aquarists or, or people that weren't willing to try. I think we can keep almost any fish alive. Almost. Like we have this saying in the UK, you know, there's no such thing as poor weather. There's only poor clothing. 
<laughs> right, there you go. And it's kind of, you know, there's no such thing as, as bad fish. There's right. only bad fish tanks. Yeah. Obviously, you know, the, 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 the realistic scales, if you want to keep a red-tailed catfish, okay, well, you're going to need yeah. a swimming pool. Um, right. But, right. you know, that, it's not that it's impossible, but, you know. Um, but I mean, even think of like so-called touchy fish, like, you know, they used to say some of the, some of the, the, the angel fish were very touchy or some of the mm. discus were touchy. It's no, you need to provide them the environment they need. We used to see this in the, in the marine aquarium world all the time. Oh, that coral or that fish is very delicate. It's not that the coral or fish is delicate. You're not supplying it the right diet. You're not giving yeah. it the right physical structure in the environment that it needs to be comfortable and do what it does. I, I just think it's a matter of us learning. And that's, that's again, another aspect of the hobby that's so fun is that yeah. you can never stop learning. And there's also an element of chance and luck. Like, sure, I have, I have this big uh, planted tank. It's kind of aquascaped. And I've got uh, Myriophyllum Guyana, which is a lovely little bushy plant, Myriophyllum from Guyana. Mm-hmm. And um, in the past, I've never had success with it. It always died away. It kind of melted. It just nothing happened. Now I put it in my tank. I can't get rid of the stuff. Like it's it's forming these dense mats. It's growing vigorously everywhere. I don't know what it is. Whether there's something with the lighting, with the nutrients, <laughs> with the flow, with the temperature. Something is different to my past attempts and arrangements, and it's thriving. And it's really cool. It's really satisfying. Like finally, but you can't you know, figure out what it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know yeah. what it is, but something is working, and um, and it's rewarding me by looking, you know, lovely. I, that, that's a funny phenomenon because I've had that happen over the years with stuff. You'd say, why am I successful now? And I wasn't yeah. before. This is something I've been average success or maybe not so successful with. And for some reason, this time it's working. What did I do differently? And having to backtrack. I mean, that's part of the fun to do the detective work and think, what, what is it yeah. that I did differently this time? Well, this is why, for, you know, serious, uh, I don't like that term actually. Ser- I was going to say serious aquarist, but for people who are well, interested in learning the whys in the house keeping a, a diary is quite a good idea yep. it's not something i do myself but when i worked in london zoo we had you know constant records and daily water tests and water parameter records and, and feeding you know you could if a tetra died we had its entire life cycle and all the parameters wow. it had been kept in for weeks years we right. had a pass report you know you could go back and do your detective work and be like oh yeah no something here went wrong or you know um and then you know how to improve it for next time. You know, I've been keeping on and off like a little fish keeping diary since I was a kid. And I can look back at some of my old little diaries that I kept, yeah. you know, my observations about, you know, what fish worked with what. Fish. I mean, there were obviously when you're seven years old or nine years old, <laughs> your, your, <laughs> your, your concept is different. The fish didn't like the other fish because it was colorful or what. But, you know, but I, I would make these observations and. Looking back, not too long ago, I found one of those little books and I was looking back on it and I thought, you know, these were really kind of interesting observations at the time because it was my worldview was much smaller. Sure. And I had only to go on what I read in, you know, the books from the library and the fish I saw at the store. And then you're thinking, why are they do? Why are my zebra danios acting this way? You know, yep. how come this clown loach isn't doing well? You know, well, it's because it needs a much larger aquarium than your 40 liter <laughs> aquarium that you have, in, you know little things you learn growing up but it, it's that's i agree keeping records it, is important it all goes into the repertoire into the pot the, into the knowledge the the other thing i was going to bring up on, on on just in terms of data collection and it's something i'm i'm not a big I, like i guess because i came from the reef world i was always into testing and monitoring not as so much in the freshwater but when you're dealing with specialized environments i do test but 
and I like digital like pH meters and PDF okay. probes and things like that because I can get really accurate reading. I don't have to worry about liquid reagents and tinted water and all that stuff. And yeah. people ask me that all the time. Yeah, you get spend the money, get the you know Hannah or Milwaukee or whatever brand checker and use that, and you're set. But do you? Are you big on water testing or data collection or are you just sort of kind of like, yeah, looks good. I'm curious. Let me put it this way. I told my friend Steve the other day, like, oh, I, uh, I tested the water of my big tank. Uh, and he said, are you feeling well? <laughs> like, <laughs> I guess that, that answers that. <laughs> basically, I, I, I find, I know when I was at London Zoo, you know, I had to test hundreds of tanks every week. And, and, oh, no and wonder you don't we want had to very, anymore. well, we had very advanced equipment. Like you put a little sure. vial, uh, you put the water in a vial and you put it in this digital machine thing. And it did, oh, it was a amazing. Colorometer. Yeah. yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. But I tend to, my rule is, you know, you don't put fish in until the tank is mature. And, right. and maturity comes from filling it, if possible, with plants or organic materials, letting right. it run for a while making sure there's mature filter media in there. You start by stocking after a while, a number of small fish, and then you wait and see what happens. And, you know, if they thrive, then later on you add some more and it's a slow process. Right. It's a building process. I, the only reason I was testing was um, I got these quite fancy killifish. Um, so Pura Panchuk's uh, Luxophthalmus, which I've got in my oh, tank wow. here in front of me. Yeah. They're really crack spawners, nice. right? Aren't they, yeah. Um, yeah. They are they're gorgeous. And um, I uh, I put them in, and they, every morning they were kind of at the surface. And I was a bit worried. You know, killifish hang out at the surface anyway, but they just looked a bit, you know. So I went to my local aquarium store who, where I used to work, and I was like, could you just do a simple test on the water? And uh, And they also looked at me like I was, you know, so I, I've been kidnapped and I was an imposter and, um, and they said, no, it actually, it looks, everything seems to be totally in order. Um, so generally my philosophy is, you know, I'm, I'm using years of experience and, and gut feeling. I don't right. want to play around with the lives of my animals. So I don't fill a tank with fish earlier on. I give it time. I let things mature. I'll move in media from an established tank. I will use water from an established tank. I have a very slow stocking process over time. Um, what it, what it, uh, testing can be a really useful tool. Um, but you can't be a slave I, to it either. You can't be you a know? slave to it. And, you, and making changes based on, oh, you know, no. especially people who are beginners or getting into the hobby, they suddenly panic. Oh, my God. Because my they're advised. Is, yeah. Right. And uh, you can end up, you know. The key is using it as a means. Yeah, the key is a means to gathering information. Like when we're dealing with specialized environments, like when we're looking at soft acidic conditions or whatever, it is important to understand what did I do to get that, and what is the operating parameter of this aquarium, and that that's important for for data collection. But like you, I don't obsess over that stuff. I don't obsess over pH. I obsess over keeping things stable within a range. But but I have so many people that reach out to me and say, I want to get my pH to five point three. How do I do it? Well. You got to start with RODI water for, for one thing. And then, yeah. you know, you can use a lot of means to get there. But people are obsessed with numbers. And I think that that was a problem with the reef aquarium hobby. People are obsessed with, oh, yeah. my nitrate is this, my calcium is this. Who cares? Do your coral look good? Yeah. I had plenty of guys that had spot on water and their tanks looked horrible. I, and I, other people that never tested their <laughs> tanks were gorgeous. It, it, I, it's you I know, what you said. Thing. Like it can suck out the joy sometimes. Exactly. Unless you are a chemist and you really love it. Like, that's your thing 
Yeah. One of the things I, I used to laugh at when I worked in a store, and as you know, I told you I worked in a an aquarium store for a while and yeah. Um people would come in and say, Oh, my, my fish have died. So, okay, well, do you do you have any uh water samples that we can test and we can see what's going on with your tank? Water's fine. It's totally it's crystal clear. <laughs> yeah. I would say, you know what? Oh. Vodka is crystal clear, but your fish wouldn't do very well. <laughs> and they exactly. would say, oh, it's fine, it's fine. And and in that sense, you know, if it's for right. troubleshooting, I think testing is, is perfect, especially for someone who's perhaps not quite sure. Go go to your shop, your local store, g- well, get them to do a test, get them to explain to you what's going on with your tank and where you need to be, um, right. to, whether if things are okay, if things need to be improved. Um, they might say, "Look, your tank hasn't cycled properly. Do you what is your are you feeding too much? Have you got too many fish in there? What's the filtration like? All sorts of things which can then lead to you taking the action to resolve the issue." But as you said, reacting to test to regular testing, constantly rushing about firefighting. It's crazy. No, No, but I think one of the keys to aquarium keeping, one of the things I've just, the joys of playing with, you know, the botanical style of aquarium that we play with is I think your reliance on biology and your reliance on the microbiome of the aquarium is is greater because that's the whole ballgame. And the thing to me is I think more aquarists, more hobbyists need to, understand the basics of biology or aquarium ecology yeah and i think that would alleviate a lot of frustrations and concerns and eliminate a lot of disasters that people face if they actually understand what's going on and why nitrate accumulates why ammonia comes what what causes yeah. this what the interactions are between the animals because that's the whole ball game and you know you talk about creating a great environment for your fishes you touched on 90% of what I think are the most important attributes in fish keeping patience, going slowly, taking the time to observe and not adding all your fishes at one time, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like people talk about, Oh, how long does it take the tank to cycle? I don't know because I don't <laughs> monitor my tanks for nitrogen cycle. I just don't add fish for a while. You know, yeah. uh, I, I just don't do that. I don't, I don't, there's no rush to get the fish in the next day when the tank feels right. I'll do it. You know, I think I, we get I, caught I up in that. Take- I have a technique which is perhaps I don't know, but after my tank has been you know running for a while, I have a I have a massive colony of clear cherry shrimp. Ah. And, and what I'll do is I'll put a couple of them in the tank, and as soon as I see that there's a pregnant female, I know that everything's okay. That's like, smart. Okay, there's and you know it's I don't throw them in early on because shrimp are pretty right. sensitive, but they also act like canaries in the, in the coal mine. You know, once yeah. the tank's kind of in my head, the tank's mature, but I'm still not sure, you know, whether I want to add fish and, you know, I want to see what's going on. Put some shrimp in. Um, if they start foraging and they're happily bumbling about, okay, that's a good sign. Normally let it keep running. Um, and then if you see a pregnant female, you're like, okay. It's a really good the, sign. If yeah. the shrimp are breeding, it's time for fish. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned that you had a few other questions, perhaps audience questions. Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm going to read you two questions perhaps and we'll, then we'll let you. Yeah. Get what you get to your dinner. <laughs> well, I'm <laughs> building. Really I'm building a cabinet for. for oh, that's for right. Tank projects, and my right. uh, my dear friend Steve is downstairs with a circular store, so I, I don't want to abandon it. <laughs> yeah, and poor guys. Uh, okay, let's get to these questions. This is from Brienne. From okay. oh, she's from she's from Ireland. So Brienne, okay. not not too far from you in the neighborhood. So no, no. Uh, okay, so Brienne asks. She said, "I'm." Hi, Ty and Scott. Really love listening to you guys. You're geeky, and that's part of the fun. 
<laughs> she said, I'm really into black neon Tetras at the moment. Can oh, well. Ty, has Ty ever observed those in the wild? And can you recommend compatible fishes to keep with them? Now, I think by compatible, she probably means, I'm going to assume that what she means is um, fishes that are found with them. Yeah. Because um, you, you've had well, some black neon experiences, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, so first, hi to Brianne. And thank you for the question. Um, so black neon tetras I've, I've collected in the wild. I've swum with them and, and snorkeled with them. In fact, on my birthday in December, um, I was in a habitat in Mato Grosso do Sul in Brazil, snorkeling with black neon tetras. And if you, um, if you wanted biotope correct species to go with them, um, so you could add uh, Hemigrammus ulrei, which is the, the black line tetra. You can add, um, here we have the, the red eye tetras, which are the Monkhausia sanctophilomine in the black neon habitats. The cousin is uh, Monkhausia forestae, but they have pretty much the same requirements, so you could add them in. Um, Caracidiums, so data caracins, uh, can be found in their habitats. Are they on the on the substrate more? Or yeah, they, sitting, on the sub, sitting on the substrate. They're sort of similar to Caracidium fasciatum, sort of perched mm -hmm. on the sand, darting about. You can add Epistogramma trufasciata, which oh. I've also, I've got footage and films of, the, of them swimming together. Um, Corridorus aeneus can be mixed in with them really easily. And I collected them in a, another habitat where we found the uh, Epistogramma borelli and the uh, Aphiopharyx rathbunae, uh, the Rathbun's tetras. So those are biotope correct. But generally, you know, other small peaceful tetras and rasboras are quite happy with, with black neons. I find that black neons tend to do better at slightly lower temperatures. So about 23 degrees is kind of good, 22 degrees Celsius. Really, um, on the lower end of the temperature. Yeah, well, my tanks here all run around 22 degrees Celsius. Year-round? Year-round you keep them up that temperature? Yeah. Yeah. And um, the f plants tend to do better as well. Fish metabolism is lower. Um, they And so, yeah, with rasboras, if you wanted to mix rasboras with black neons, rasboras tend to like slightly warmer temperatures. So you may just want to do your, your research um, as to what, they, what they'd like. Um, but yeah, small, peaceful caracins, corridoras, um, dwarf, dwarf cichlids like epistogramma, um, hatchet fish. So again, your, your giant silver hatchets would, would work with them. Um, yeah, there's a, and I think on my, on my YouTube, there's a, you have that video. Yeah. Yeah. On, if you go on YouTube and you search uh, biotopia or on Instagram, which is biotopia tie, um, I've got videos of, of the, of the habitats of, of black neons. So, um, these, you these, you'll see. geek out over these, these videos, by the way, everybody, you just, <laughs> well, if you haven't seen them already, you just need to study these and freeze frame them like I do and look at all the details. It's really amazing. It can be quite helpful to, to see which fish. And there's another fish that you can find with black neons. It's a little harder to find in the trade, which is, um, Phenocogasta tegatus, the three spot tetra. And, um, oh, wow. you, you can find them and you can also put Monkhausia bonita, which are available in the UK trade sometimes. So all right. hopefully that's collection. That's a good answer. I'm going to read one more for you because I know I didn't realize how, how long-winded we've got. See what happens when we just talk? It's, that's part of the fun. Is we just get it going. I love it. Okay. This is from Alex from Houston, Texas. Brilliant. Alex says, says, hey, guys, Ty, really glad to have you on the podcast again. 
Scott, always glad to hear you. Oh, see, he's a smart guy. I like that. Uh, <laughs> he says, I am a big fan of Plecos. Is mm. there a particular Pleco that you have found anywhere in the Pantanal region? Is there a Pleco that you have found in the Pantanal region? And if so, which species and what would you recommend to create a comfortable habitat for them? Okay. So the, the ones I most encounter are um, uh, Hippostomus basilisco and Hippostomus bulangeri. I don't know if those are available in the trade. I haven't seen them in the trade in the UK. They might be in the States. Uh, Hippostomus basilisco is a stunning fish. Um, and the other one I've encountered, and that's a serious pleco. It's big, right? Is the, yeah, the, um, oh gosh, now I've forgotten the Ambrosetti. Um, the sailfin plex, uh, which are invading in, invading Florida, it's the um, perigoplichthys, perigoplichthys ambrosetti, which is a sort of tank of a fish, <laughs> and its cousin perigoplichthys uh, is it multidentatus is in Florida, busily destroying the Everglades. So, um, you can also find a number of ancestrous, um, so hemiancestrous and so on. Um, there is a range of other plecos there, but they're just not very, I haven't seen them in the hobby. Um, but if you wanted to, if you were able to find a Pantanal space species, or if you wanted to use a species from the Amazon or the Shingu basin, which there's many different species, um, the first thing you want to do is, is look up kind of what it eats. So if it's, uh, if it feeds on, particularly on woody material, um, it'll often be in slightly slower moving habitats. Uh, if it grazes largely on algae and alfus, you'll want it over kind of large boulders, perhaps with lots of flow and lots of oxygen going on, but it's worth mixing both. So take, uh, I use as an example, the, the Royal Plec or the Royal Panac, which is, you know, beautiful striped yeah. plec from, from the Amazon. Um, a suitable habitat for them would be quite a large tank, big filtration, system these are these are fish that produce a lot of waste quite a lot of flow maybe lots of boulders that have been allowed to sit in buckets outside gathering algae in the sunlight which is easy in houston um and maybe some large pieces of driftwood so they can rasp away at the wood they can graze on the algae on the rocks if they like to plenty of flow pl plenty of oxygenation in the pantanal we do get this because we get them in the in the main river channels you find various plecs kind of on the logs on sunken tree trunks in hollows in the bank where the current can be quite strong. Um, the Pterygoplichthys, which is a really large fish, um, I found them in flooded water meadows. But again, for one of those fish, you would need like a two-meter tank with a wow. big filtration system going on. Um, the Hippostomus, they tend to get about 25 centimeters, so they would be more suitable. Much more manageable, yeah. Yeah, I just don't know what... Um, what species would be available in in the states for Alex? Yeah, but um, but that's good that you gave the the species names because now the important yeah, thing for someone like Alex is he can research now that yeah. that information and say, oh, okay, those if, are two species. What are related? Where are they found? You know, that's that's good information. If you search, uh, if Alex were to look up, there's a an ichthyologist, fantastic scientist who's called Luis Tencatchi or Luis Tencat. It's uh, T E N C A T T. Um, Luis has written a lot of articles on Pantanal loricarids and, and, and loricarids from um, 
Mato Grosso do Sul in Brazil. Um, and he's even described and identified and named a number of the Hippostomus species. So oh, wow. if you Google him um, you and, and maybe search for some of his articles, I bet Alex would find some really useful information on there. Fantastic. Well, man, Ty, as usual, this was a <laughs> treasure trove of information. Like, oh. I don't think there's ever a time when we talk when there's not like some crazy idea that enters my head that you got me obsessed about well, you know, you know four I'm, meter long black o snipefish tank. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> but, know the, the crazy idea that we share at the moment is, is the, the Pantanal trip next year. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I want yes. you. I want you involved in that. You know, I would so. love to do that. That would be amazing. I mean, that, just getting out into the wild. You know, we could do a podcast from the side of a, a raging riverbank or a Pantanal meadow or something. That would be amazing. That would Internet be amazing. Difficult, but we do. We could record. <laughs> well, we could record it for later. How's that? Yeah, yeah. The sounds <laughs> that, of the, the Pantanal night work in the background. Oh wow! Uh, I remember the time when you were you were you were still in the Pantanal area, and you were we were talking, and there was like dogs barking. Remember that? There's the neighbor's oh, dog was so yeah loud. It was like yeah, live from Brazil. <laughs> I don't miss that, but um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do miss the sounds of creatures at night and the fireflies, sure. and you know, the uh, one of the distinctive sounds that Alex might. <laughs> I think slightly sad is that on the river you'd hear this incredible like cracking sound like bones cracking and it was the giant river otters eating big plecos <laughs> you could just... the sound of death <laughs> yeah yeah i think a lot of see it. keepers might have a hard time with that one <laughs> but you could hear it there goes well, another one <laughs> on that note scott I yeah think, uh, i think we've covered quite a lot of ground today we have we have and, uh, thank you for the time Thank you. It's been really good to, to talk with you. And I really enjoyed answering the, the audience questions. I, it's, it's really nice to have that uh, input from, from people who listen and be able to, yeah. to respond to them. We have smart uh, listeners and, and they have good questions and, and we have plenty more. So we'll have more next time when we have you on. We'll, I look forward we'll do, to that. Yeah, we'll do some more of these and we'll, maybe we'll be able to talk more about your projects coming up in the, in the coming podcast or something. I, I will be on to you. I will, I will be hopefully able to announce more about it soon. So we that's will, fantastic. Yeah. Well, you have yourself a good evening and everybody out there, thank you so much for listening as usual. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint. And have a good evening, Ty. You too, Scott. Take care. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.